Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac List podcast. Doing a bit of a catch up because I, well, completely forgot last night. <laughs> Which is, I think that's the second time that I've just straight forgotten. Um, since maybe the second time since this whole thing started, so in three years. Might have even been the first time where I've forgotten. There has been times where I've missed an episode because, like, I didn't click publish. Um, you know, and I thought it had been published, but I didn't, or ones where, um, I fell asleep early and then got up in the morning and did it, um, kind of by accident. Um, but last night I just, just straight up forgot. It was really quite, kind of weird. Um, so this is yesterday's episode, right? So there's going to be two episodes in a row right now. I'm going to do this one, uh, and then probably within the hour I'll, I'll record another episode. Rapid fire podcast episodes. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about chapter 120. Um, I hope... <laughs> I hope she wants to travel, is what I meant to say, but I just wrote, I hope wants to travel. Um, Swim said the mum fish, she said, hmm, I thought at the end of the last chapter that the most they would hap- that would happen would be some canoodling, but this chapter makes me think they went all the way. Regarding reading Hemingway's short stories, there is one collection that is in the public domain, Three Stories and Ten Poems, um, privately published in a run of 300 copies by Robert McAlms. All right. Um, there we go. So that, that could that could get us through. That's 13, um, well, three stories and ten poems. That's 13 things. Um, that's perfect, really. That'll get us through. Um, where can I read it? That's the question. Um, I think you can just read it via here. Yeah, it looks like we'll be able to find it online. That's a pretty good idea, Swim said the mum fishy. I reckon that's a, maybe the go. We've only got like one day to figure this out. Now, whatever we do, I'm going to just... It's going to be something short, right? So short poems or short stories. Um, but what I'm going to do is publish them in the subreddit itself. Okay, so um, the discussion forum for the day will include the text that we need to read. I think that's what I'm going to do. I'm pretty sure that'll be easy enough. Um, or at the very least, it'll it'll have a link to the text. Um, but yeah, good idea. I think I like that. I might even like that the best so far of all the ideas we've had. Uh, cool. All right. Uh, I am Norwegian said this, some healthy romance at last. Books always make the development of relationships seem so natural and easy. Maybe it's the fact that I grew up with solitary hobbies, but I've never had that. I wonder how this is going to affect Philip's travels. I doubt he'll manage to separate Sally from her family. That was the first thing that popped into my head. You know, I hope he's not going to sacrifice this dream of his to see the world um, because he's going to sort of settle down with a with a girl and, you know, get locked in to, to the family, so to speak. Um... Who knows? Maybe she likes to travel. Laura Y. Stitch said this, but this is the first time Philip has had a natural and easy relationship. He's surprised that passion can be other than filled with anger. <laughs> and I'm Norwegian responded, this is quite true. Nora was natural until Philip philipped it up. Nora was natural, yeah. And he, but he did philip it up. But I don't think he, their relationship, um, I don't think he was in love. You know, I don't think that relationship was really ever that strong. But it was a, there was a good um, passage from this chapter 
I can't remember the words exactly, obviously, but um, it was something about how he he was struggling to cope with the fact that um, that uh, Sally wasn't having like fits of anger. He kind of couldn't figure out like how to deal with her if she wasn't like having hissy fits. Something along those lines. I changed it completely, but that was the gist of it. Um, uh, that was kind of strange, I thought. And um, I don't know. Strange, kind of poignant, kind of interesting. Anyway, let's read the chapter. Uh, 121, second last chapter. goes like this. When the hops were picked, Philip, with the news in his pocket that he had got the appointment as assistant house physician at St. Luke's, accompanied the Athelnys back to London. He took modest rooms in Westminster and at the beginning of October entered upon his duties. The work was interesting and varied. Every day he learned something new. He felt himself of some consequence and he saw a good deal of Sally. He found life uncommonly pleasant. He was free about six except on the days on which he had outpatients and then he went to the shop at at which Sally worked to meet her when she came out. There were several young men who hung about opposite the trade entrance or a little further along at the first corner and the girls coming out two and two or in little groups nudged one another and giggled as they recognised them. Sally in her plain black dress looked very different from the country lass who had picked hops side by side with him. She walked away from the shop quickly but she slackened her pace when they met and greeted him with her quiet smile. They walked together through the busy street he talked to her of his work at the hospital, and she told him what she had been doing in the shop that day. He came to know the names of the girls she worked with. He found that Sally had a restrained but keen sense of the ridiculous, and she made remarks about the girls or the men who were set over them, with amuse- which amused him by their unexpected drollery. She had a way of saying a thing which was very characteristic quite gravely, as though there were nothing funny in it at all. And yet, it was so sharp-sighted that Philip broke into delighted laughter. Then she would give him a little glance, in which the smiling eyes showed she was not aware of her own humour. They met with a handshake and parted as formerly. Once Philip asked her to come and have tea with him in his rooms, but she refused. No, I I won't do that. It would look funny. Never a word of love passed between them. She seemed not to desire anything more than the companionship of those walks, yet Philip was positive that she was glad to be with him. She puzzled him as much as she had done at the beginning. He did not begin to understand her conduct, but the more he knew her, the fonder he grew of her. She was competent and self-controlled, and there was a charming honesty in her. You felt that you could rely upon her in every circumstance. You are an awfully good sort, he said to her once, a propos of nothing at all. I expect I'm just the same as everyone else, she answered. He knew that he did not love her. It was a great affection that he felt for her, and he liked her company. It was curiously soothing, and he had a feeling for her which seemed to him ridiculous to entertain towards a shop girl of nineteen. He respected her, and he admired her magnificent healthiness. She was a splendid animal with defect without defect and physical perfection filled him always with admiring awe. She made him feel unworthy. Then one day, about three weeks after they had come back to London, as they walked together, he noticed that she was unusually silent. The serenity of her expression was altered by a slight line between the eyebrows. It was the beginning of a frown. What's the matter, Sally? he asked. She did not look at him, but straight in front of her, and her colour darkened. I don't know. He understood at once what she meant. 
His heart gave a sudden quick beat and he felt the colour leave his cheeks. What do you mean? Are you afraid that... He stopped. He could not go on. The possibility that anything of the sort could happen had never crossed his mind. Then he saw that her lips were trembling and she was trying not to cry. I'm not certain yet. Perhaps it'll be all right. They walked on in silence till they came to the corner of Chancery Lane, where he always left her. She held out her hand and smiled. Don't worry about it yet. Let's hope for the best. He walked away with a tumult of thoughts in his head. What a fool he had been. That was the first thing that struck him, an abject miserable fool, and he repeated it to himself a dozen times in an angry rush of angry feelings. He despised himself. How could he have got into such a mess? But at the same time, for his thoughts chased one another through his brain, and yet seemed to stand together in a hopeless confusion like the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle seen in a nightmare, he asked himself what he was going to do. Everything was so clear before him, all he had aimed at so long within the breach at last, and now his inconceivable stupidity had erected this new obstacle. Philip had never been able to surmount what he acknowledged was a defect in his resolute desire for a well-ordered life, and that was his passion for living in the future. And no sooner was he settled in his work at the hospital than he had busied himself with arrangements for his travels. In the past he had often tried not to think too circumstantially of his plans for the future, it was only discouraging, but now that his goal was so near, he saw no harm in giving away to a longing that was so difficult to resist. First of all, he meant to go to Spain, that was the land of his heart, and by now he was imbued with his spirit, its romance and colour and history and grandeur. He felt that it had a message for him, in particular, which no other country could give. He knew the fine old cities already as though he had trodden their torturous streets from childhood, Cordova, Seville, Toledo, Leon, Tarragona, Burgos. The great painters of Spain were the painters of his soul, and his, his pulse beat quickly as he pictured his ecstasy on standing face to face with those works, which were more significant than any others to his own tortured, restless heart. He had read the great poems, more characteristic of their race than the poets of the lambs, for they seemed to have drawn their inspiration not at all from the general current of the world's literature, but directly from the torrid, scented plains and the bleak mountains of their country. A few short months now, and he would hear with his own ears all around him the language which seemed most apt for grandeur of soul and passion. His fine taste had given him an inkling that Andalusia was too soft and sensuous, a little vulgar even, to satisfy his ardour, and his imagination dwelt more willingly among the wind-swept distances of Chastille and the rugged magnificence of Aragon and Leon. He did not know quite what those unknown contacts would give him, but he felt that he would gather from them a strength and a purpose which would make him more capable of affronting and comprehending the manifold wonders of places more distant and more strange. For this was only the beginning. He had got into communication with the various companies which took surgeons out of their ships and knew exactly what their routes, and from men who had been on them, what were the advantages and disadvantages of each line? He put aside the Orient and the P and O. It was difficult to get a berth with them, and besides, their passenger traffic allowed the medical officer little freedom, but there were other services which sent large tramps on leisurely expeditions to the east, stopping at all sorts of ports for various periods, from a day or two to a fortnight, so that you had plenty of time, and it was often possible to make a trip inland. The pay was poor and the food no more than adequate, so that there was not much demand for the posts, and a man with a London degree was pretty sure to get one if he applied. 
Since there were no passengers other than a casual man or so, shipping on business for some from some out-of-the-way port to another, the life on board was friendly and pleasant. Philip knew by heart the list of places at which they touched, and each one called up in him visions of tropical sunshine and magic colour and of a teeming, mysterious, intense life. Life, that was what he wanted. At last he would come to close quarters with life, and perhaps from Tokyo or Shanghai it would be possible to transship into some other line and drip down to the islands of the South Pacific. A doctor was useful anywhere. There might be an opportunity to go up country in Burma, and what rich jungles in Sumatra or Borneo might he not visit? He was young still, and time was no object to him. He had no ties in England, no friends. He could go up and down to the world for years, learning the beauty and the wonder of the variedness of life. Now this thing had come, he put aside the possibility that Sally was mistaken. He felt strangely certain that she was right. After all, he was so likely anyone could see that nature had built her to be the mother of children. He knew what he ought to do. He ought not to let the incident divert him a hair's breadth from his path. He thought of Griffiths. He could easily imagine with what indifference that young man would have received such a piece of news. He would have thought it an awful nuisance and would at once have taken to his heels like a wise fellow. He would have left the girl to deal with her troubles as best she could. Philip told himself that if this had happened, it was because it was inevitable. He was no more to blame than Sally. She was a girl who knew the world and the facts of life, and she had taken the risk with her eyes open. It would be madness to allow such an accident to disturb the whole pattern of his life. He was one, one of the few people who was acutely conscious of the transistoriness of his life and how necessary it was to make the most of it. He would do what he could for Sally. He could afford to give her a sufficient sum of money. A strong man would never allow himself to be turned from his purpose. Philip said all this time to himself, but he, Philip said all this to himself, but he knew he could not do it. He simply could not. He knew himself. I'm so damned weak, he muttered despairingly. She had trusted him and been kind to him. He simply could not do such a thing which, notwithstanding all his reason, he felt was horrible. He knew he would have no peace on his travels if he had the thought constantly that, with him that she was wretched. Besides, there were father and mother. They had always treated him well. It was not possible to repay them with ingratitude. The only thing was to marry Sally as quickly as possible. He would write to Dr. South, tell him he was going to be married at once, and say that if his offer still held, he was willing to accept it. That sort of practice among poor people was the only one possible for him. There his deformity did not matter, and they would not sneer at the simple manners of his wife. He was curious to think of her as his wife. It gave him a queer, soft feeling, and a wave of emotion spread over him as the thought of the child which was his. He had a little doubt that Dr. South would be glad to have him, and he pictured to himself the life he would lead with Sally in the fishing village. They would have a little house with sight of the sea, and he would watch the mighty ships passing to the lands he would never know. Perhaps that was the wisest thing. Cronshaw had told him that the facts of life mattered nothing to him who, by the power of fancy, held in fee the twin realms of space and time. It was true, forever wilt thou love and she be fair. His wedding present to his wife would be all his high hopes, self-sacrifice. Philip was uplifted by its beauty, and all through the evening he thought of it. He was so excited that he could not read. He seemed to be driven out of his rooms into the streets, and he walked up and down Birdcage Walk, his heart throbbing with joy. 
He could hardly bear his impatience. He wanted to see Sally's happiness when he made her his offer, and if it had not been so late, he would have gone to her there and then. He pictured to himself the long evenings he would spend with Sally in the cosy sitting room, the blinds undrawn so that they could watch the sea with he with his books while she bent over her work, and the shaded lamp made her sweet face more fair. They would talk over the growing child, and when she turned her eyes to this, there was in them the light of love, and the fishermen and their wives, who were his patients, would come to feel a great affection for them, and they in their turn would enter into the pleasures and pains of those simple lives, but his thoughts returned to the son, who would be his and hers. Already he felt in himself a passionate devotion to it. He thought of passing his hands over his little perfect limbs. He knew he would be beautiful, and he would make over to him all his dreams of a rich and varied life. And thinking over the long pilgrimage of his past, he accepted it joyfully. He accepted the deformity which had made life so hard for him. He knew that it had warped his character, but now he saw also that by reason of it he had acquired that power of introspection which had given him so much delight. Without it he would never have had his keen appreciation of beauty, his passion for art and literature, and his interest in the varied spectacles of life. The ridicule and the contempt which had so often been heaped upon him had turned his mind inward and called forth those flowers which he felt would never lose their fragrance. Then he saw that the normal was the rarest thing in the world. Everyone had some defect of body or of mind. He thought of all the people he had known, the whole world was like a sick house, and there was no rhyme or reason in it. He saw a long procession, deformed in body and warped in mind, some with illness of the flesh, weak hearts or weak lungs, and some with illness of the spirit, languor of will, or of a craving for liquor. At this moment he could feel a holy compassion for them all. They were the helpless instruments of blind chance. He could pardon Griffiths for his treachery and Mildred for the pain she had caused him, they could not help themselves. The only reasonable thing was to accept the good of men and be patient with their faults. The words of the dying God crossed his memory. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Alright, there's a chapter for you, Philip's in the deep end now. One chapter to go. Let's see what happens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you very soon.